Greetings and salutations, all you beautiful people, and welcome to another episode of Art of the Beholder, a show dedicated to all things eclectic in the world of art, where we do deep dives into deep cuts and help you understand why damn things matter. I'm your host, Novo Day, and today we're going to be talking about art in music and theater, focusing on singer, songwriter, pianist, record producer, and dancer, Kate Bush. To hash it out, I am joined by guest Ron Butler a New Yorker born in Mississippi, a jack of many trades who is currently practicing art photography and a lifelong Kate Bush fan that also got to kind of grow up with her alongside Kate's blossoming career. So this is perfect. I'm so excited to, to chat with Ron today because he's going to give us some excellent perspective and we'll probably meet in the middle. So Mr. Butler, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks. It's great to be here. I have been eating, drinking and sleeping Kate Bush all week. And I now I don't know if you if we talked about this, Ron, but I had been wanting to do the show for a long, long time, even before Stranger Things made her a international star again. And I um, so I'm so happy that you're here today. You're going to give us some great insight. Well, great. Yeah, I'm, I'm reaching back into my memory of what it was like, <laughs> you know, back in the day. So back in the day, indeed, because so K Kate Bush has always lived in a in a fascinating world in the music industry, because in the States, she is often considered indie fan favorite. But in the UK, she is already a mainstream pop outlier. So just to put it in perspective, so she's had incredible success in the UK, but for some reason, and definitely in the States, she just has never quite found the same appeal. So she became the very first artist to achieve a UK number one hit with a self-written song ever in the history of UK billboards. Now, sometimes as she went through her career, she sometimes would have, you know, the foot in both worlds a little. She got a lot more recognition, obviously, after the, the huge magnum opus that is Hounds of Love and The Sensual World and things like that. But it never was quite, quite hitting like we've seen her in the last year. And part of that is because of Stranger Things. Now, she already, what's crazy is she already carved out this incredible artistic independence for a time. She was even self-producing her studio album since 1982 with The Dreaming. But it wasn't until Stranger Things came around that highlighted her sound and brought her to a international audience like we've never seen before. And more importantly, a brand new audience, a younger audience, and maybe getting a level of recognition she never thought possible. So so, Mr. Butler, I got to ask you first, uh, how old were you when you first got into Kate Bush? What year was it? And what was, you know, what was your first impression? Well, this would be uh, 1980. I was 18. All right. So, yeah, I was born and raised in Mississippi and had sort of a, you know, contained sheltered life. And <laughs> in my junior how senior- How so? Contained Well, just being conservative, you know, Southern Baptist, you know. Uh, so- my junior, senior year in high school, things are starting to expand. I'm experiencing more and more music outside the realm I was raised in. And, you know, going into college in 1980, I, I used to go down to Hattiesburg, Mississippi, where a lot of my friends were. And it's one of those sort of enclaves at the time where it was a place of enlightenment for me, mm. at least. Elaborate. And, yeah. So, like, I, you know, you'd go down and there'd be parties and, you know, all of a sudden I'm discovering Carlos Castaneda or mm. finding a drag club or, you know, whatever. <laughs> so I remember going down to a party at my friend Earl's place and hanging out, whatever. And all of a sudden somebody drops a needle on Never Forever. Mm. 
That was so. That was the very first LP you ever listened to. Yeah, and I remember walking across the room, going, "Who is this?" And somebody said, "Oh, it's Kate Bush. You know, she's from England." Blah blah blah. And I grabbed the album cover, and I, I think I just completely ignored everyone the rest of the night. And I just sat with the album cover, reading it top to bottom, back and forth, listening to the side. And as soon as I could find it in a record store, I bought it, and I, I wore the grooves out of it. And you know, and then I started buying the albums that came before, you know, Lionheart and The Kick Inside. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was immediately hooked by what she was doing. It, it wasn't just that she was a great songwriter, theatrical. This album also sounded different from anything else I was listening to at the time. I think that's a good segue to um, get us prepared for the discussion section because that's a good kind of subthesis for our main thesis. She is she is something that uh, we've never had before, never heard before, and, and though there are influences clearly and uh, inspirations, you know, definitely by I I don't want to go down a a long rabbit hole. We'll just say Mister. Stardust definitely influenced her. But what I love about Kate Bush and chime in if you have anything to piggyback on here is the fact that I cannot compare her to really anything. Kate Bush is Kate Bush and she is eternally unique. I I think, too, you know, she came on the scene very young and she already knew who she was. Right. I mean, she, she had a grasp on what she could do, what she couldn't do, who she needed to lean on to get there. I mean, she was wise at a very young age. It immediately shows in the material and how she approached it and what she would do for the sake of the song and the story. She wasn't just going to sing pretty and whatnot. She could <laughs> she could make her voice ugly, terrifying, and it sold the song. And it's like, of course, you know, why wouldn't you do that? Yeah, we call it, um, or I like to call it, I guess in the industry, it's called, uh, you know, vocal gymnastics. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, she was very, uh, you know, even before she she hooked up with Lindsey Kemp, that was a mime and dancing instructor. I mean, she was, she was theatrical clearly before she was formally trained. And that just uh, bled right into her musicality. And yeah, like you put it perfectly, it was it was she already had a fully realized uh, sound before she ever, you know, and she as a kid, if you if uh, if you've done as much homework as we have, I mean, she was writing hundreds and hundreds of songs as like a teenager, as an adolescent, like an incredible such an incredible scope of uh, musicianship. Now, before we get there, of course, we all need a little background. So Kate Bush was born Catherine Bush on July 30th. 1958, in Buxley Heath, Kent, England. Now, what's great about her history, I'm not going to spend too much time on her history because I want to get to the discussion section, is David Gilmore, yes, that David Gilmore of Pink Floyd fame, helped discover her. A lot of people don't know that, and more importantly, helped helped her produce a formo demo tape, which ultimately led to a record deal with EMI Records, and the rest, as they say, is history. To this day, she has made 10 studio albums, two live albums, two compilation albums, and five EPs. Now, before we can hash it out, though, of course, we need a little word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Liquid IV. Guys, if you don't know what Liquid IV is, well, buckle up because I'm going to throw you a game changer. Liquid IV is a hydration multiplier that not only tastes great, but is a non-GMO electric light drink mix. 
powered by cellular transport technology to deliver hydration to the body faster and more efficiently than water can just do alone. One stick contains three times the electrolytes of traditional sports drinks with five essential vitamins. Now, I pride myself on telling you about things that I either already like or just use in my everyday life, and I have to say, I've actually been a fan of Liquid IV for a long, long time now. I use it for everything from, you know, just long runs to stay in shape, all those late nights with those after hours, or just when I'm feeling a little dehydrated. I turned to it so it could just, my God, set me straight, make me feel like a million bucks again, and just get me ready for the day. So please head on over to their website. That's liquid-iv.com to check out their amazing line of products. And get this, when you use promo code Art of the Beholder, all one word, you'll get 20% off your order. Now, if you need a little direction on where to start, I recommend Lemon Lime. Guys, you're gonna love it, won't be disappointed. So please give it a shot and get more fuel for life's adventures. Now, back to the show. So now we are gonna dive headfirst into the discussion section. We already touched on a couple of things. Before we start going through her uh, discography, as we like to do on this show, and focus on the art, I'd like to hear a little more from you, Mr. Butler, on um, how would you, you know, if someone has never heard her music before, ever, you know, you were starting to touch on this a little bit in that beauty and ugliness, that terror, that thoughtfulness and her vocal stylings. But how would you describe her music to someone that's never heard it before? Uh, she's gifted at being able to write a play inside your head. Mm, I like that. The way she talks about, the way she does her lyrics and couches things, she, she definitely gives her intent and her narrative, but she gives enough space for you to step in it and bring your meaning into it. Mm. And so she, I think she means different things to different people. Absolutely. Well, yeah. Well, so well. She, she's surprising, even like on the first couple of albums. Definitely with the dreaming. Oh, my God. Like what a bonkers series of of um, of uh, compositions. We'll, we'll get there. But, but even going back to like Lionheart, I mean, th these are very like soft, lilting sort of songs. Mm -hmm. But don't rely on that because it, it actually... She takes you into places you don't expect to go, you know, lyrically, sonically. Yes. It's like uh, when I was trying to describe it um, for the good people listening, it's I would call it like a sonic hit and run <laughs> yeah. uh, because like when I was um, going through her discography again, I time and time again, I was just, yeah, surprised. I just it, it, it felt like it was all over the place. And that's that's such a testament to you have to, you know, art, good art, music, especially music. Sometimes you have to give it time to get into it and, and let it settle into your mind and digest it because it is especially, you know, everything up until like Counts of Love and definitely Essential World. It was a little hard to digest. And I think and I think that's probably part of the reason that she maybe wasn't as big in the US as she was in the UK. And there was a theatrical element that, you know, when you would see old videos of her and seeing her doing these interpretive dancing uh, that we just, you know, we, we weren't used to in the States because we were used to, you know, Michael Jackson's like perfectly syncopated, you know, moves to the music, things like that. Not these very whimsical, <laughs> strange, you know, things that we kind of make fun of, honestly, in America. And I think they take a lot more seriously in the UK. Don't forget the early, don't forget the early video effects too on those. Oh on those. God, Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> they did, uh, guys, they didn't age well. I, I encourage everyone listening to just YouTube a couple of them. It's, it's a lot of fun. You'll see a lot of 
Kate Bush's eye flares in there when she goes into the chorus and things like that. Sat down on <laughs> your lap is a great one to start with. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I started with videos even from like the kick inside the Lionheart stuff. Um, it's just, yeah, it's, it's a sonic hit and run because it's so polyrhythmic, uh, especially with vocal harmonies. It's so dense. It's very eclectic. She would uh, use a lot of layered sounds like synths and, um, is incredibly textured because of that. And you put a note in our outline that I was going to touch on, but I'm glad you did. So back in the day, now we take this for granted cause we all have phones now, but, um, there was a sampling device called the Fairlight and you could essentially sample anything. So when you hear like glass breaking and stuff and that and hounds of love or whatever the track or whatever the track is from the album that is from the Fairlight. and so she, since she was a trained pianist it was essentially like a whole new palette of textures to choose from and we saw it in some bonkers you know mad hatter ways like in the dreaming and stuff to like really excellent effect even down to uh, 50 words for snow things like that so i um i i loved what she did and i think part of the reason we have never you know heard anything quite like kate bush is i think her real inspiration when you get right down to it in the history is from her brother patty yeah, definitely. I mean, and she knew, and she knew how to incorporate him into her pieces too. You know, just listening to Never Forever, how he's like in the background singing like just these odd, <laughs> odd things. You know. Oh, oh my God! Yes, like all over the place with with some of these like vocal. Well, she she liked you know layered vocal harmonies, but it would be. I don't think I'll ever forget the the impression of a donkey from the end of dreaming for oh, the yeah. rest of my life. And that's what I was talking about. The, the ugliness. She, she could go there. I yeah. mean, that, that's a terrifying sound she's making, you know, <laughs> I think we should dive in. I think that's a good way. The, the donkey hee-haw that you heard at the end of the dreaming is a good uh, segue to just go ahead and talk about her art through her discography. So in 1978, we have the kick inside and this is where uh, we have uh, singles like moving strange phenomena, uh, Kite, the man with the child in his eyes, and Weathering Heights. So Weathering Heights was the very first single she ever put out. And right away, and I'm going to tee you up with this uh, again, um, Ron, is by saying she already, you know, there was no development of a sound like a lot of artists you know it takes some of an album album or two to find their sound their quote-unquote sound she had the vi- she was a visionary she had a vision for what she wanted to write and how she wanted it to sound immediately yeah i think it did take her an album or two to get the tools she needed to make the, the, sound the production side right right yeah like you know having the fair light later on to to make the samples and play um you know the first two albums would have been very different had she had that. Uh, you're just triggering a memory. I, recently, I saw a video of, I think there's a staged event. People who come out and do Wuthering Heights, they all mm. dress in the same dress. It's like a thousand people. They play the music really loudly and they all do the choreography together. Oh my God, yes. Oh yeah, God. yeah. So, you know, <laughs> so it's on YouTube somewhere. Yeah, it's sight definitely check that out. What's what's uh, some of your favorite tracks from this first LP? Um, Man with a Child in His Eyes sticks out. I mean, that was one of those things where it kind of, I don't know, it just kind of grabbed me, the softness of it, how it, um, how she, you know, talked about this person. And she's famous for that, too. You know, with her lyrics, um, she is often, you know, kind of in the vein of just her musical stylings and her musicality. People really like to analyze her lyrics because, you know, it, time and time again, they they have this moment of, 
who writes this? Like who, who the hell is thinking about this thing in this context and in this way? And Kate Bush was doing that at like 17, like times when, <laughs> like I definitely was not doing that at 17. I was, um, well, we won't go there. I was, I was definitely not as progressive as Kate like, Bush. Like, uh, you know, the song, them heavy people, Yeah, you know, after hearing that, I'm like, so who's Gurdjieff? You know, I'm like going to the bookstore in Mississippi trying to find, you know, books about him to find out what is she talking about? Yeah, she loved I uh, this is a, an excellent point to touch on. She loved literature. She was a huge reader and she would put uh, she would put quotes or, or, you know, versions of what she read. I think the most famous example is is the central world. She did. She used uh, lines from uh, Ulysses, Joyce's Ulysses. Um utilizing the repeating motif of the word yes things like that where uh, we just yeah again going back to our original uh thesis of we just never saw this and if you were to um if you were to describe the genre of music that she writes uh how would you try to describe it to people oh wow okay um like is it you know, it's not just pop, right? You know, I, if that's an easy umbrella term for her. I, song, I think but... she she comes out of the art rock. I always thought of her. Yeah. And maybe that's where I, you know, because that's kind of what I was listening to before I found her. Yeah. Uh, you know, the early Genesis. Oh, yeah. You know, that King, kind of King stuff. King Crimson. All right. Guys, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, she comes out of that. It's everything's got a story. You know, it's all about, you know, your imagination going. You're lying on the floor with the album cover in your in your hands listening you know, with headphones on and it's just taking you off somewhere. She comes out of that. Her albums always were that for me too. So, I mean, it was a great thing that she connected with Gilmore, you know, Pink Floyd. I would do the same thing with their albums. You know, you just kind of drift off, let it carry you. But it's also like she's reading you a book too. Yeah. (laughs) Telling you stories. That's that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, So I, when I was really trying to rack my brain and and trying to describe this to uh, someone that's never heard Kate Bush again, because though we, (laughs) though we don't have a huge following, I I imagine there's people that are listening that are either going to be huge Kate Bush fans and they definitely know more than me. And there's going to be people on the other end of the spectrum that have no idea still who she is because yeah to this day i still talk to people i I can't believe this probably not anymore since stranger things but i can't you know i'll you know i'll talk i'll be talking music with people at a party and i'll bring up kate bush and i consistently get who you know and i'm like yeah um well let me enlighten you but if i were to describe her sound her genre to people it would be um i keep i kept hearing alt rock or alt pop like alternative pop and even prog rock to your art rock. And I thought, what a good combination of, uh, since, you know, part of the thesis is there's really, there's truly no one like her. I, I always did a pretty, with our other shows, I've always done a pretty good job of trying to think of, okay, they, this person was clearly influenced by this person. And so they're a lot like, you know, X, Y, and Z, where I can't really do that with Kate Bush. And so I've been calling her prog pop. Right. That's what I've I've settled on. <laughs> well, from the literary standpoint, the only other comparison I could make is the first two Ambrosia albums. Mm. Uh, I mean, that is just chock full of literature of all sorts. I mean, you've got Jabberwocky, you've got Kurt Vonnegut, yeah. you know, and it's just all over the place. Um, and that's the only thing I think I can compare to her albums with regards to the literature aspect of it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that leads us to Lionheart, which was also done in 1978. So the the reason that they she released two LPs in one year was this was, you know, the suits in the background saying, "Okay, well we had some success with the kick inside. We real we need to push that success with uh more music." And so a lot of I, you know, she famously disliked this album for a long time. Um, and I, I guess I can kind of see why I don't, I wouldn't call them B sides since she has such a volume of compositions clearly was always in her brain. And then, and that she willed into existence. Are they some of the, uh, uh, is some of the best work on this, uh, list? No, but it definitely deserves, you know, its own spotlight. So, um, this had singles, symphony in blue, wow, and hammer horror. And, um, you know, wow. Wow is a good song. You know, it's it's and it's it's the same reason this is one of the shortest ones, but it's it's often rated the lowest. Yeah, I mean, I would also include uh, Don't Push Your Foot on the Heartbreak. That one listening to it today, I was like, you know, it's it, it's got some meat and potatoes to it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um and Hammer Horror, I mean, anytime you can talk about that whole genre of of horror films, you know, great. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I didn't want to um I don't I didn't want to spend too much time on this cuz there was so much uh <laughs> more meat and potatoes, I'll use your line. Uh later on in the discography. Uh, is there is there any anything else you want to touch on before we move on to your uh your introduction to Kate Bush with Never Forever 1980? Uh no, not at the moment. I- I'm sure something will crop up in my head in a minute. Yeah, we'll come back to it. We'll come back to it. So 1980, Never Forever. I feel like this is kind of in the vein of uh, what you were talking about. She um, she was finding herself. I still feel like there was a fully realized world with how she wanted to make these compositions and these movements and 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 definitely the, the textured, the, the musicality of it, right? The lines, the guitar lines. Versus I think this album also falls into the category of almost a perfect album. I mean, you mm, dropped a really? needle on the first, and it just plays through, you know. And I, I don't, I don't I really push find back a, on you a little bit there. I, you think it's a perfect album? Uh, I mean, there's probably some that are more perfect, but I think it goes from top to bottom as as a very continuous, solid piece. Okay, I always felt like these first three albums were so dense, though. Like I, I when I was preparing for the show and listening to these albums over and over again, I would, you know, I would often see what track I'm in, you know, in the the session. And I thought, oh, man, I must have been listening to this for over an hour. And, you know, none of them clocked in. You know, there would be like, I think this one's like 36 minutes, something like that. Uh, it is, I have to look it up, 37 minutes and 16 seconds. So it's, they're, they're very short albums. They're very tight. They're very, but they're just so, and I think that part of that, you know, sonic hit and run thing was part, I think it was probably because you, I probably the difference between me and you and, and something like this is um, since you cut your teeth here, you know, and mm-hmm. I cut my teeth way later with like the sensual world, the red shoes, things like that. Right. And so um, my, and, that, and that's when I start waning on her material. So. Oh really? Okay. See, yeah. I'm the opposite. That's where I, I started to, I think um, I'll tell you my, and I, I, I like a good debate. So if you disagree, I, I'd love to hear your, your, your opinions. There is an album that I think is a perfect album down the road and you may, so you think her later work is a little, and eh, that's, it doesn't land quite as well. I started, uh, kind of backing off around hounds of love, you know, the mm. dreaming hounds of love I liked, but I was also noticing 
she was getting into sort of that two chord groove thing. <laughs> she was <laughs> getting a into a, a comfort you know? zone for sure. Yeah, yeah, and it and it was just kind of like same 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 autopilot I mean, maybe. Yeah, it, it was still quality, but yeah. it was just you know, and you know, things in my life it just kind of took me in a different direction musically. I started listening to something else. So, Do you play anything? Yeah, I, I've been playing banjo since I was seven. Oh man, uh, guitar. Oh, we need we uh, need a little banjo solo one of these days. Yeah, one of these Ron. days. Sure. <laughs> uh, we'll have you on the show just for that. Sure, why not? Um, yeah, I play guitar and I play saxophone too. Okay, so you know you have a lot of music theory chops, and, you yeah. know, in the back. So and, when you're listening to these things, you're listening to it as like a guitar player, a banjo player, thing. right? And I've also been an audio engineer too, so okay. I kind of, from a production standpoint, listen to things that way. I I, I have a question for you then. Okay, so these first probably until. Yeah, Hounds of Love days. You know, when she started taking over production, I, I, when I was listening to it, especially when I listened to the whole discography and then I started over with The Kick Inside in 1978, I always felt like something was missing. And then I realized she has a lot of middle and treble, but she never would produce her songs with a lot of low end, a lot of bass. Yeah, I agree with that. She, she really, she kept it in the, in the upper range. And I think it also, her vocal too. Yeah, it would accentuate through that. that sort of high end. She's got warble is the wrong word, but she's she's up there a lot of times in the upper register. Oh my gosh! Yeah, her register is I is so uh, huge. Like yeah. especially in, especially using it like an instrument, she right. would be so powerful. With I mean, just going back to the album we're on right now, uh, Never Forever with Babushka. I mean, like just hitting those those notes that really would cut through the mix, even without like a, a, a doubled layered vocal too. I right. mean, she would use that, you know, through choruses and stuff. But uh, a lot of the time I was just like, re-listen to these albums just to really dissect what she's doing with their vocal. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, she's up, she's up in the upper register and she's using that either to be sort of, you know, enticing and cute or to be terrifying up there. <laughs> and then she'll yeah. drop down. The and donkey. It, yeah, she'll do the donkey and she'll she'll drop down and all of a sudden it's very intimate and close, like your mother is singing to you, you know? That's a good way, yeah. And, and yeah, she's yeah. kind of just and she could do it within a measure. What's crazy crazy is I, you know, as much as I tried to read as much background on, on her as possible, she never was formally trained though, right? I mean, she had she had training from her brothers and stuff like that, but she never had like a singing coach, or did she? I don't know. I would I always got the impression that maybe she got a little bit after the fact, mm. you know, yeah, once she had that. signed with a, with a label, you know, they're like, Hey, you know, let's work on the breathing. Let's, let's work, you know, yeah, let's, 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 uh, sharpen the skill of, yours. yeah, which is not an uncommon practice. You know, yeah, that's then. true. So, I feel like, yeah, there was maybe some, um, emulation in the beginning and then maybe some sharp sharpening after the fact. So, uh, never forever, uh, final word before we move on. I don't know. I mean, I, I love this album, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's a good um, word. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, I was listening to Elias today yeah, and just, you know, sort of a non sequitur song, you know, but it, <laughs> it stays in my head still. Then what did you, uh, let's move on to the dreaming 1982, because I feel like this is polarizing, you know, you thought never forever was a perfect album. What are your thoughts on the dreaming? I, I would say this comes in as a number two for me. Wow, number two. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Again, this is another one I approached and listened top to bottom over and over and over again. Yeah, I, I felt it was a bit more theatrical. Very. Like oh my you, could, God, yes. you could definitely put this up on Broadway. 
Absolutely. I was joke. Uh, yeah, for another sub thesis, or you know, just trying to describe her music to people, I would always say um, she was so theatrical. It was like she was writing pieces for a musical that never was. Right. She was writing these pieces for some musical that she was, you know, commissioned. You know, she was commissioned to make songs for her, hypothetically, but then it just never happened. So she put it into her own discography. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I would say she's probably writing them and staging them in your head, mm. you know. <laughs> so, and it, that's probably a good segue also to her live performances because this would, it, it, guys, if you've never seen this before, again, um, again, just YouTube her videos first, but then YouTube the live stuff too because it was, it was, it was obviously singing, dancing, but again, a very interpretive kind of style of dancing not your not your michael jackson's or your backstreet boys uh not that syncopated everyone's doing the same thing at the at the beat of the music um but also like it was mime it was it was magic it was lighting it, a lot I, of martha like, graham in there yeah like <laughs> like i feel like she um and i think we take for the take this for granted with kate bush she um she was really the first to combine a lot of those elements and we we see it today and you know we take it for granted like oh well that's just they're an artist they're a musician so yeah they're, they have this big stage production but I don't really feel, I feel like when I would see old clips of, you know, live, you know, these big high number productions, I mean, outside of like Pink Floyd, that was like a whole nother level of production. But, um, you know, it's just the band playing, you know, it wasn't, there wasn't a theatrical side to it. Right. And I feel like that made it so refreshing. I guess Bowie did it to an extent, but it still was not, I don't know. She still made it her own beast. Well, she was doing video more or less before people we're doing it before MTV. I right. mean, she, she was doing all the movement and the storytelling, you know, and visuals, um, you know, live show or, you know, on film. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, this, you know, so this album, the dreaming is, um, is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> we, we should start there. It's a lot. I, I guarantee, uh, for anybody that, is just yeah used to the hits running up running up that hill and stuff like that you're gonna listen to the dreaming and you're gonna be like uh, i mean i even even with my first listen i was like this may be a little too much for me and i i love weird i love avant-garde and this was like this was a challenge uh, yeah. but I, I grew an appreciation for it like you yeah if, if you want to get to know your neighbors turn up get out out of my house really loud <laughs> <laughs> so that yeah that's the uh guys that's the last track on the album that has the impression of the of the donkey he haws at the end yeah. but i feel like it 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 evolves into that nicely though this is another i think this is a perfect example of like this is why we have the album you know like we needed sat in your lap all the way to get out of my house to really bring you into that world and that those theatrics and i i i really like a lot of these pieces like sat in your lap the the actual the dreaming night of the swallow you know all the all the love love, yeah Yeah. i mean it's it is really good i would i would i wouldn't say it's um it's an anomaly is what it is yeah it's it i I feel like this is a uh, a testament to her entire career i feel like kate kate the kate bushes of the world may not get the opportunities that Kate Bush got. Like I, I, when I look at her career and the music she made, I think to myself, how did this even happen? You know, cause I, I guess I'm so used to like the, the industry now and studying it. And, and unless it had, you know, 
perfect hooks and choruses. And, you know, it was that very bubblegum pop that was easy to digest and made, you know, sold a million copies on day one. You know, if it's not that, then they brush it aside, but they took a chance with Kate Bush and she just kept making music to this yeah. day. And I think she was surrounded by people who understood who she was, what her talent was. That's true. And they, they weren't trying to make her something, something else. else. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, she was, she's very lucky that way. You know, I actually, I think that's a perfect way to put it because yeah, the, the more I studied her and I'd watch a documentary on, on her before the show, uh, for the, for research purposes, I, I could tell right away that she was like a musician's favorite. Like, and not just like anybody, like the David Gilmores of the world, you know, yeah, um, a musician, all musician. these, conte- yeah, exactly. All these contemporaries, uh, Elton John, you know, things like that. They just were always, they almost admired her. You know, she was just a fan favorite within that community of artists. Exactly. Uh, you just remember making me remember, um, here locally in New York, uh, there, there's a show live at five back in the eighties. And she came on in the afternoon to do an interview before Mm -hmm. a show. And she was just so charming and intelligent. And uh, I mean, she wowed Sue Simmons, who was the interviewer. Mm. Uh, I think you can still find that on, on YouTube also, Uh, but it was a great interview. Yeah. I, I, I loved watching just interviews of her because she had this innocence about her. Like she, 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 it didn't seem like she was putting on a face. Like you see a lot of people that do these and you can tell they're acting, they're in a mode. And you could tell she wasn't putting up with bullshit either. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she was holding her own at a very young age. I think she is famous for really putting her foot down for being like, no, we're going to go in this. I mean, obviously, clearly, uh, Lionheart is a good example of there was pushback. You know, it's like, we want you to still be a financial success, but she would put her foot down. I think it's why she started self-producing. She's like, no, I'm taking over. I don't know. If, no, fuck you guys. I'm, it's, just, yeah. I, it's time for me to take over now. So, so uh, that, and that leads us to 1985 hounds of love, which is arguably a lot of people would call this her magnum opus. I would, uh, I would like to respectfully disagree. I think it is a great album. It's, it's often considered her best, her magnum opus. And it has the track running up that hill uh, to open it. Um, though for all you Kate Bush heads out there, we all know it's really called The Deal With God. That's what she wanted to call it originally. And the record label made her change it because they were uh, they had fears that it would, you know, rub people the wrong way because it has God in the title. So to this day, it's called Running Up That Hill. I think R.E.M. was having a problem with that at the time. <laughs> I think, well, oh God, don't get us, don't go down that rabbit hole. I feel like a lot of artists had a, had a hard time talking about religiosity and yeah, things of that nature. So um, I'm going to go, since this is the magnum opus, I'm just going to go through the track titles real quick. And then I want to talk about how she broke this up. So um, side one is called, so the group of songs, the first five tracks are called Hounds of Love. That's Running Up That Hill, to Deal With God, Hounds of Love. Track three is The Big Sky. Four is Mother Stands for Comfort. Five is Cloud Busting. And then on the other side is what she called the ninth wave. This is track six, The Dream of, of Sheep, Under Ice, Waking the Witch, Watching You Without Me, Jig of Life. That's a great track. And uh, Hello Earth and The Morning Fog, another great track. So if you were, if any of you guys just recently got into Kate Bush and you're wondering why, it sounds like there's two albums here. That's 
by design. So she kind of put the hits on the first five, and then she put the weird avant-garde experimental stuff she likes to um, work with on the second half because remember this was also this was also a a a relic of of its times because we had vinyl or tapes where you had to turn it over and you'd have a completely different uh kind of world to fall into first side uh cloud busting and the big sky were my favorites yeah and those were like you know the experimental ones of the hits too right and and, you know and here she she is leaning into that two chord groove that i was talking about and still using fair lights, you know, getting the, these timbres and textures. That's just mm. wonderful. Yeah. Uh, the second side, I think Hello Earth, uh, Jig of Life, I like. Waking the Witch to me is a lot like Get Out of My House. Mm. Uh, you know, it's, it's you know, it's it's a screamer kind of. <laughs> that, uh, yes, understatement sometimes. I like the Morning Fog too, the closer. I, I just, you know, this is, this is one where... You gotta listen to it over and over. You gotta, you gotta give it time. You gotta digest it. It is, it is even, even with the first side, with the hits, the quote unquote hits, even though they are still very experimental and very avant garde. It, it's still gonna, it's still gonna be take some time to get into, and that's why I think you know. Again, going back to, we saw so many musicians just say like, "This is this what inspired me." Even Big Boy from Outcast. <laughs> one of the biggest rappers of the 90s and 2000s to this day says Hounds of Love was a huge inspiration. Yeah, I mean, it's got a lot going on in so many levels. So it's going to appeal to a, wide to a variety lot of, of different people. Oh my for, God, for, yes. for very different reasons. Now, do you think it's the magnum opus or do you think uh, Never Forever in the Dreaming Arm? I would put those three together. I think, mm. you know, she, she really, she hit upon something with that. I think with Never Forever... She she did something that uh, for me for me there's there's certain albums that stand out because they sound very different. Tom Waits' Swordfish Trombones and Peter Gabriel's third album, who she collaborated with on set. right. So it's it's not only just you know the quality of writing and the musicianship, it's how it sounds, what they brought into it, the sampling. I mean, True. we're still we're still looking at a time where you know if you remember we were changing over from analog to digital at this point. So people were still recording analog and then mastering for a CD. Yeah, um, that is a good point. So yeah. it, it would, you were still able to get some of that quality of the warmth and the the bandwidth and depth of an analog recording, um, and they improved the CDs over time to match that. Um, I, I mean, now you can do the whole thing on your computer at home, right? Um, With Pro Tools or whatever. Yeah, exactly. But there was just something about, you know, getting it on that tape and the way they worked with it, bringing digital instruments in, you know, the sampling and so forth. Yeah, I think this is a good calling it, I mean, informally kind of like a, a, a trilogy of albums that yeah. kind of are linked together. And we see that a lot with artists, you know, they sometimes it's um, purposeful. Sometimes they they meant to make a trilogy of albums like uh, the Berlin trilogy, you know, exactly. going back to Bowie, something like that. And sometimes it's accidental. You know, I feel like Dark Side and Wish You Were Here and The Wall, uh, even though there was an album in the middle of that, um, you know, th- those ran together. They didn't quite mean for it to for them be housed together in this kind of sonic uh, world, but but we as the listeners in the audience, we find those things right. It's it's the human condition. We have to categorize everything, right? Well, well, that goes back to what I was saying. You know, she does her thing, but she leaves room for you to bring your meaning into it and make yeah, your own yeah. associations. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, it's it's like uh, sonic paintings in that in that regard. That's actually a, gr- a great. I was listening to her today, and I was thinking she is a painter and a sculptor. Yeah, you know, more oh, than yeah. a musician oh sometimes. Oh yeah, I think she would even agree with that if we could interview yeah. her. You know? I mean, several times I'm, I'm listening to a song, and I'm just I can just imagine her lightly pl- placing a brush <laughs> on the canvas and going, "Okay, see this." You see yeah, this? Yeah, no, that's that's it. I can I can't see that, you know. And I know, um, I know Kate Bush is probably listening. She's a huge fan of the show. That's what we hear. So, Kate, uh, Kate, if you're listening, uh, if you want to be on the show, we'd love to hear your, um, you know, your take on some of these theories we have. So just let us know, okay? So uh, now we are in the second half of uh, her discography with 1989's The Essential World. So I will start with this, and then I'll pass it to you. I think this is a perfect album rebuttal <laughs> uh well this this was about you can the push time back let's debate this may say more about me than her but I, I was at a point in my life where i was starting to move away from her catalog mm. you know i started to listen to other things so i maybe didn't pay as much attention to what was going on at this point i think uh between i think here's my here's my argument here's here's why i feel that way is I think it really came together. I still like. I still feel like that enough of the ex- experimental stuff was there, the avant-garde, but then the production was there. I finally started. I, it's like every album was. I, I got a little more low in, a little more low in, back to back to back, and this is where I feel like it, it started to really come together. Of course, it really. I mean, we'll get there, but it, it really came together with Fifty Words for Snow. But um, you know, I started to see it just the the production and the sound, the quality was. Uh, for lack of a better word, a little more well-rounded, you know, and her using strings and other things to harmonize with. I just, yeah, I think it's a perfect album. Yeah. I'm not going to dispute that. Like I said, I I listened to it. (laughs) You can, let's argue. But but, no, um, no, you kind of brought to mind, John Zorn brought up a a thing about there is no bad music. There's only badly done music. Mm. And one of the other things I noticed or, or heard him talk about was, using different styles to get from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. And I find that's also in her work too. And, you know, changing the instruments, changing the song style, whatever, to get, be true to the idea of whatever it is she's writing for that particular song. I think it is also, you know, art is uh, subjective. So, you know, um, well, she's not parked in one place musically. So, well, and I am also just like, I think, you know, um, it does come down. I think, I guess my point is it does come down to taste a little bit because just like when you were describing the things you liked in her in the beginning of her catalog, I, I, uh, partly, I think I'm in love with the central world is I'm, I've always been a sucker for strings and those kind of arrangements. And um, so a lot of the things she decided to do with this is the stuff I've always, always kind of been in love with anyways. So right. that's why I, I probably gravitated it, it towards that. And I think we, um, a quote unquote, she got kind of to an autopilot or she got into a comfort zone with the middle part of that first half too i feel like she did that a little bit too with like the red shoes in 1993 and definitely ariel i feel like every track on ariel though solid is right in the middle of the road it's not really you know it's just simple songwriting it's not crazy experimental you know with like the dreaming stuff it's not jokingly poppy like um the red shoes can be sometimes with like rubber band girl for example um it was just it was right in the middle Uh, i'm shocked she must have had so much material in her head to make a double lp in 2005 of of, of her whole discography but um so yeah i i kind of pair those two together the red shoes and ariel 
what do you think of those guys? I, I think I, I gave them a listen through once or twice, <laughs> and, it, and it just didn't hold. And, and one more for the show, right? It just wasn't hitting for you then. Yeah, it wasn't. You know, okay. I, I think too. You know, you know, you're growing older. You, you know, more mature. You start to say things in a different way. Sure. And it, it's not really you know reaching out and grabbing people the way the early material was. Sure, that's that is very true. The the early material was would strangle you to listen to it. Oh my God. Where this one was, uh, I hate to use the word safe. It wasn't, her music has never been quote unquote safe. It's just, yeah, it wasn't as experimental or hard. I mean, the quality was always there. Yeah. 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 And the production choices. Like I always felt like she always kind of still stayed on the, on the higher end, uh, trouble end of how she liked to produce her work. So still good. And and another thing I, I, I made a note on is I don't know if this was accidental or purposeful, but every time I would hear an album and especially in this later work where it was very spread out. So like in 1993's The Red Shoes, that sounded like an 80s album to me. Like the production sounded like it was from the 80s, the song composition, et cetera. Whereas when we got to Ariel 2005, that sounded like an album from the 90s with how they used to uh, still, you know, record music to tape with analog. But it still had that very quintessential 90s sound. Uh, and it wasn't until... Honestly, we can go ahead and speed up to 50 words for snow. It wasn't until that, and there was a huge gap. So guys, this is just a recap. So the Central World was in 1989. The Red Shoes was in 1993. Ariel was in 2005, so big jump. Uh, And then there was two albums back-to-back, Director's Cut, which I'm going to kind of, we're not going to talk about a lot because, so a Director's Cut was a a rearrangement of her old material, like literally re-recording music, which is, so give it a listen, but it's nothing necessarily new except for the production and the arrangements. Whereas 50 Words for Snow, and this was 2011 again, it was a jazz album, essentially. And I, I, this is so, I, I, I will, I will pass it back to you with this statement. This is a close second to the central world for me. I think it's a perfect album. Yeah, I, I would agree too. I mean, I did listen to that more than once or twice. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, and again, you know, the maturing thing, you find too when you move through material, you tend to start revisiting things of your parents. Yeah, you know, I mean, Elvis Costello does that. So reaching back, re- reaching back to grab something to bring it forward. I was excited to talk to you about this because uh, even though we live in different uh, or we grew up in different generations, I um, have, you know, I've always found music to be timeless. And uh, believe it or not, the late 60s and 70s to this day is still my favorite era of music. I actually feel more you know, I feel like I should have, I was born in the wrong era. I feel like I feel more attuned to that music, like Led Zeppelin and obviously the rock stuff. So yeah, cream and Jimi Hendrix and, and, and the stuff that obviously a lot of men like, but, but then I started to get into like the weird, you know, can and Mahavishnu orchestra and you already named Genesis and we, we called King Crimson. And, and I think for her to go back again you know for all the sounds she could have chose you know uh, you know i could have easily seen her do a completely edm like electronic not not dance music but just electronica kind of sound but she decided to write essentially a jazz album with stephen fry's beautiful vocals saying words for snow (laughs) right it's funny when i say it that way i mean it's poetic even (laughs) (laughs) um no it's just making me think of you know what chrissy hine released a jazz album what a year or so ago but that they're reaching back yeah to bring forward 
I mean, I think we live in, have lived in an age of recombination, you know, for decades, you know, mm-hmm. taking something and just like refreshing. <laughs> well, I do think that is the, the wave of the future. I think if we're, because um, I think the biggest criticism I have when I talk to people that are really big musicologists or, or just uh, music historians is there's nothing except for electronic music. There's nothing new. You know, there was so many different genres at what I call the, the age of the musical age of popular music enlightenment, which is late 60s and 70s, because we had yeah jazz and blues and, you know, Latin and, you know, all yeah. these. And then there was cross pollination there. But it was distinctly different when we would get new things or funk like Parliament Funkadelic and things like that. Whereas now we don't see a lot of that. And I think if we're going to ever push through that, I think it's still a glass ceiling. We'll probably find some new genres in time it'll have to be with combining things we've never ever even thought to combine before so it's really refreshing to see someone like (laughs) she's in her 60s now still uh, doing great killing it writing music and and combining things like she's never combined before mr ron butler take us home why study the great kate bush she really does embody that that literary theatrical themes and and the the way she approaches textures, melodies, rhythms, there's a lot to learn from her, you know, if, especially if you're a musician, to be able to pull away. I think about the women who came after her, you know, Fiona Apple. God, she had, she inspired so uh, Bjork, uh, yeah. St. Vincent these days. Right. I mean, the, but the but list she, is endless. she basically walked up to them and said, you know, here's these tools I've developed. Go be yourself. She, exactly. That, that is a good point to make. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's one of her biggest legacies is what she inspired in other people. I think that's a perfect way to end it. There you go, guys. The life, legacy, and career of Miss Kate Bush. I want to thank you guys for listening. I want to thank my guest, Ron Butler. Thanks for doing this. It was an excellent perspective, as I knew it would be. And we got here to the other end. But before we go... Guys, know we got a little more for you, a little icing on the cake, a little cherry on top with what we call the gym of the week. If you don't know what the gym of the week is, it's something we like to talk about here at the end of our shows. That doesn't always fit into the scheme of the episode because it may just be on our radar in the last day, last week, or maybe last month, but we want to give it to you guys so you guys can dig deeper. Before we dive in, of course, we got to hear from their sponsor. Uh, today's gyms are sponsored by Zencaster. Zencaster is our go-to tool for remote podcast recordings. What's great is that you can record separate audio and video tracks, and it's all backed up on a secured cloud, so you never lose your hard work. Even better, it's easy to use, and there's nothing to download. So go to zen.ai, that's Z-E-N dot A-I slash Art of the Beholder, or just use promo code Art of the Beholder and get 30% off your first three months with the pro account. Now back to the gems. Mine is, I watched a BBC documentary on Kate Bush. It was literally called the Kate Bush story running up that uh, colon running up that hill in 2014. And I think it just perfectly encapsulates her career. If you, if, if you need something with, uh, to give you that visual element, you know, besides just the show, listen and watch the BBC documentary on Kate Bush. And I, I think you'll be uh, pleasantly surprised on how well it captures her career. This summer, I fell in love with the album, a wary and plus strange amethyst kia she comes out of the genre of uh black women who are trying to reclaim country music oh okay. uh, but this particular album i think ties into our subject matter and in that it's one of those albums 
that sounds different. Mm. And it was the first album I've heard in a really long time that just made me sit up and go, wow. The way she produced it, uh, recorded it, her choices, uh, you know, it threw me back to Kate Bush. It threw me back to Peter Gabriel, Tom Waits. Just that, oh, this is a new way of playing a song. Hmm. And this is, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, so this is A-M-Y-T-H-Y-S, right? S-T. K-I-S-T. No, K-I-A-H. Amethyst Kia. Amethyst Kia. K-I-A-H. And it's wary and strange, right? Uh, where, I think it's wary plus strange. Or it could wary be wary and strange. But okay. yeah, it's it's... It's a country album that's different. I mean, it's mm. imagine Peter Gabriel producing. Mm. Ooh, that is that's a that's a good selling point. Yeah, because I I would argue we haven't done a tangent corner all show. We've been pretty we've been we've been so professional, guys. Um, and that's that's thanks to Ron. So we'll do a little tangent corner here at the gyms. Um, at the end. So I um I am not a huge country fan because of what country has turned into, and which is I have always criticized it a little bit for being pop music with the twang now don't get me wrong let me say this i love country music when it's quote-unquote real or true country so you know your your johnny cash's your hank williams right. your you know that kind of stuff i feel like when they're just singing about beer and tailgates and yeah, you I mean, know, it's just pop music right? a lot of it's an excuse to do bad pop music <laughs> there um, you go i like it yeah so i but right. this Kia, this isn't bad. This is Peter Gabriel's yeah, and production again, it, of country music. Yeah, it's it, it feels like he would have done it. But it speaks well to her that, you know, she did this production, you know, and knocked this out. You know, she works with a bunch of other ladies, uh, Rihanna Giddens, and I forgot who the other two are. They, they revisit all-time country music that used to be played before, you know, white people took it over. Uh, so check it out, guys. Uh, wary plus strange or wary and strange. And if you like that, of course, you can check us out at NovaDayProductions.com. There you'll find things, as already stated, like the Entropy Sessions, Post Meridium Adulteration, Cancel Culture Lotto. Of course, you'll see more ads for these shows. Check out our other shows. Uh, you can always like and subscribe and do all the things. You know what to you know what to do. And rate and review all that shit. You know what to do. It doesn't matter. And if you'd like to sponsor our little love child here, or if you'd like to be on the show, you can reach out to us at NovaDayMedia.com. At gmail.com. Now, Mr. Ron Butler, as already stated, he is an art photographer. Now, if someone wanted to commission you for your work or wanted to look you up and dig into your artistry, how could they do that, Ron? Well, I guess you could say I'm kind of old school. I still use Facebook. You can find me at Ronald D. Butler on Facebook. I do Instagram, but I'm more, I lurk there more than I actually <laughs> put stuff out. Uh, and you could f- look there at Ron Butler or Ron B. Photography. And can we, and can people hire you for f- photography work uh, to this day? Or is it just Typically, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing more of my own uh, art kind of thing. Okay. So, uh, you know, just getting stuff out into shows. Okay. Like exhibitions and stuff? Yeah. Okay. So, is there anything on the horizon? Uh, there's one here in New York coming up. It's escaping my mind what uh, <laughs> gallery it is. You know, they'll probably never invite me back. <laughs> well, uh, it's, it's email me, text me later. I'll put it in the liner notes. Okay. We can yeah. still we can still promote it. <laughs> yeah. I typically promote everything on my cover photos on Facebook. So Okay. So yeah, still the Facebook is sounds like the best way to uh, keep up to date. Well, perfect. Guys, check it out on his Facebook page. And until next time, you know what to do. Be good to each other. And as always, good luck and Godspeed. We love you. Art of the Beholder is brought to you by Novo Day Productions. Created and hosted by Novo Day and the Novo Day Collective. Facebook.com slash Novo Day Media at Novo Day Media on Twitter and Instagram. Music by A Company. Facebook.com slash Music 123 Aco on Spotify.
Logo designed by Tom Justice, J-E-S-T-U-S, of thejusticecompany.com, and executively produced by Clayton Anderson. All rights reserved. Mmm, I like that.